Well, good morning, church. Happy Valentine's Day. Yes? No? You're like, oh, great. All the guys are like, oh, what? what what's today? <laughs> uh, no, uh, I know it's kind of sometimes awkward. Valentine's Day is awkward, right? Sometimes. Um, but underneath one of your chairs is an all-inclusive um, trip for two to St. Lucia. Um, just kidding. Uh, that's right here in this front row. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> gotcha. No, but uh, I hope that you're having a great day and a great weekend. Thank you for coming. I know it's nasty outside. It's been a nasty weekend. Um, but, man, I'm so thankful that you're here. What a great way to start uh, with worship and baptism. Man, it's just awesome, the, symbol, uh, the symbolism, what God's doing in the hearts and lives of people. So getting to celebrate that um, is awesome. And uh, I missed you guys. Last week uh, I was at our church partnership um, revitalization project, Deneen Baptist Church. Um, it's uh, about a 100-year-old church kind of in downtown near Memorial um, Hospital. And they're about to shut the doors, reached out to us. And one of the things I love about our church is that we're not just about ourselves. <laughs> and we're going to come and we're going to partner alongside um, because uh, more combined influences are greater than just one big influence, right? And so we're going to work with them. And, and so I was there last week. I know Jack, our student coordinator, did an incredible, incredible job wrapping up. Um, really reckless weekend, a weekend for our students. Uh, we kind of joke. It's like funny that you ask the student guys, all the student guys speaking at all of our campuses. It's like, hey, I know you've only had like two hours of sleep this weekend. <laughs> Why don't you preach? Um, and so I know I don't want to do that, um, but man, they step up to the plate and nail it out of the park. Um, this morning, I'm excited. We're starting a brand new series called The Best Sermon Ever. That's because I'm preaching it. Um, and so, no, just kidding. It's not called that because of me. That's for sure. My wife can attest. And, uh, but it's, we're calling it that because we're going to be looking over the next six weeks at what is called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in these three incredible chapters, we see uh, Matthew, the disciple, is really dictating and writing um, what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God as Jesus is teaching um, these things. And so before we really kind of get like knee deep into this, I think there's a disclaimer that I want to throw out because if you and I were to read just the Sermon on the Mount, just by itself, without any context or anything, it would be very easy for you and I to walk away from the message and say, wow, Jesus just kind of laid out this laundry list, this checklist of things to do, to be accepted by God, and it just seems really impossible. And I think there's intent with that, because um, the things that he lays out, we're going to see in the next six weeks, are really, really are impossible without Jesus, without his work, without his life, without his, his ministry, his, um, the, cr the cross, and, and his resurrection. Um, following him, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And so Matthew really does a great job in this. In the very first chapter of Matthew, he um, throws it out there and he says, hey, this guy named Jesus is coming. He, he goes to the story of Joseph, Jesus' dad, the angel coming to him and saying, hey, this son that you're about to have, you need to name him Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. And so we see that this list and different things, the practicality that Jesus is going to lay out in the Sermon on the Mount isn't this checklist of us to feel good and be like, hey, let me do all these things, A, B, and C, and D, and I'll get into heaven. 
It really is Matthew saying, hey, you can't do that by yourself. You need Jesus. He's the one that comes and saves people from their sins. You and I can't save ourselves, and our works can't save us. So he says that at the very beginning of um, his gospel. And then you see Jesus does all these teachings. And what I love about it is that Jesus then, after he teaches these things, he goes and does these, these things. He, he does his ministry, and he's starting to see. And I, what I love about Jesus' ministry is it was so relational. It was one-on-one. It was conversations with people. You don't see Jesus saying, hey, I can't talk to you until Sunday at, at the 1110 service, and I'll wear my skinny jeans, and, and it'll be awesome, okay? I'll see you at church. And he doesn't say that. He says, hey, I'll, I'll come to your house. Hey, let me come to you. Hey, there's this person that's hurting. I, I, I'll be there. Hey, let's have a conversation. And I love that because it wasn't this religious duty or kind of distance where he saw himself holier than thou and kind of said, I, I'm Jesus. I mean, he could have said, I'm Jesus, the son of man, you know, like, I'm busy right now, okay? Can you just wait? No. He went to him and said, you're hurting? He goes, let, let, let me, let's, let's talk. Let me introduce you to my father. Let me tell you who I am. Let me give you living water and the bread of life and all these things. And it's so relational. So he's doing these things. And then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we see really the last eight or so chapters are the last week of Jesus' life, all leading to the cross and his death, his crucifixion, and then resurrection, really pointing that Matthew's like, hey, all of these things that Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is going to say this in just a second, we're going to read, that it's not about all this checklist, that all is centered in Jesus. Our life as believers and followers of him aren't about puffing up our own selves and trying to be on this crazy treadmill of trying to keep up and do good things. It's about focusing on Jesus. I mean, for example, I think so often we look at the Beatitudes, you know, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that Jesus is teaching these things, and I think this is misunderstood in a lot of ways in the church, is that Jesus is saying, hey, for those of you who are peacemakers, hey, be, like he's pretty much in a nutshell saying, be blessed, like here, you know, just be blessed. Hey, if, if you mourn, mourn for those who mourn, and you'll, you'll be blessed. And it's almost as if we approach it as if Jesus is like this ancient Oprah, right? Where it's like, you get a car and you get a car. Everybody gets a car. Remember those moments? You know, I'm kind of dating myself. But that Jesus isn't this prosperity religious figure that's just saying, hey, just be good and you'll be blessed. He doesn't teach these things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say, you know what? You got everything. You got the checklist. I'll see you later. I'm going to go on vacation. No, he's doing it. And he's showing the disciples and, and everybody else that's watching what it means um, to be connected in a relationship with God. Now, the other thing that I think is so incredible about this passage is that what Matthew is doing, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And he wants to show um, the audience and, and the people who would read, us, read this and even to this day that Jesus was the greater Moses. Now, that sounds really churchy, and you're like, what does that even mean? If you remember in Exodus, we see God shows up to this guy named Moses and um, through a burning bush. All right, that's pretty amazing. I don't know if God's ever talked to you in a burning bush, but I would like to YouTube that, okay? But that he shows up, he calls him out, says, hey, you're going to lead my people, the Israelites, out of this captivity, out of this slavery and oppression under King Pharaoh's rule in Egypt, and you're going you're gonna to lead them out and you're going to take them to the promised land. 
Well, he leads them out. Remember the Red Sea? You probably have seen the Ten Commandment movie with Charleston Heston. Isn't that Charleston Heston? He's like the biggest like buff, you know, Moses I've ever seen or maybe Prince of Egypt if you like Disney. I don't know. But he leads the people, um, parts the Red Sea, and then they're in this moment of wilderness searching for 40 years. And there's this moment where Moses goes up the mountain to Mount Sinai talks to God, God talks to him, gives him um, some instructions, some rule, God's law, to then uh, Moses inscribes them on the tablets, and those are known as what? The Ten Commandments, right? So he comes down from the mountain, says to people, hey, here's the rule, this is what God said, we need to obey this or else. And up until this point of Jesus, that was the rule. Those are the laws, that's God's law. So generation after generation after generation has been passed down, follow those things. Now Jesus comes and in this Sermon on the Mount really kind of throws a wrench into that thinking and presents a new kingdom ethic about what it means to really follow God and and have a relationship with him. And and it's incredible. And so if you have your Bibles, um, open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I love this. You know, if you've been here over the last six weeks or so, we've been looking at Genesis and it, to me, it was like drinking out of a fire hose in a lot of ways. It's like, hey, we're gonna, this morning, we're going to look at nine chapters of Genesis. And that's just a lot. And I love this because over the next six weeks, we're just camping out and kind of taking little chunks here and there um, of this incredible teaching of Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to start a little bit in this Sermon of the Mount and kind of then work backwards. So in chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. Verse 17, you can follow along with me on the screens or in your own Bible or even on the app if you have that. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now let's stop there. What is he saying? What does he mean? So Jesus is saying, hey, you've heard all these Ten Commandments and the law that was laid out in the first five books of the Bible. You've heard the prophets. You know, you had prophets like Isaiah 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. Um, the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming who Jesus is going to be. And so Jesus is like, hey, I'm not here to abolish those things. I'm not here to say those things don't matter. You know, just throw those out the window. They're trash now. I'm giving you a new thing. But he said, I'm here to fulfill those things. Meaning everything that was said in the Old Testament, everything that was prophesied by all the prophets, I, it's all wrapped up and being done in me currently, right now, and in my ministry. So it's essentially, he's like, hey, everything that you've been living for, it's coming to fruition right now. Does that make sense? That, hey, it's in me. I'm fulfilling these things. So I am, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. So I'm not going to abolish those. I'm actually fulfilling those. And then he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Don't you like that word? Not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Now, here's some harsh words. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So if anybody's like, you know what, it's okay to lie a little bit, just lie a little bit. I mean, essentially, Jesus is saying they would be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But then he says, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to think about these words. They have great impact for this audience. Because at the time, the Pharisees and the scribes were like the religious elite. They were like the top of their game, the number one pick in the the NBA draft or NFL draft or whatever sports, you know. They were it. And that's what people wanted to reach. They looked at them and said, man, they know a lot. The Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible. Think about that. I had a hard enough time like just telling the story of Joseph Joseph in like nine chapters. Uh, Even it's more than that, but like the second half, much less. Can you imagine memorizing all five of the first five books of the Bible? That's just crazy. But they were looked upon. They set the tone. They were like the religion police. You can do this. You can't do this. All this other stuff. And so people, the listeners looked at them and Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, there's no way that you can um, get to heaven. They're probably like, there is no hope. (laughs) You know, there's no way I could be like that. And Jesus is going to, in these next couple chapters, totally deconstruct that. And and, and to me, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but I almost look at it as a little bit of sarcasm because he knows, God knows, and Jesus knows as he's saying this, that even though the Pharisees are this religious elite, they're still far from God. It's all ritual, it's all rule, it's just tradition and, and legalism and all of those things. And so... Um, he, he says all this, but he's setting this up. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing that we see is that true righteousness gives us a new identity. True righteousness gives us a new identity. That identity is found in Jesus, ultimately the giver of true righteousness. Now, I use the word true righteousness there because there's a difference between true righteousness and false righteousness. False righteousness is something that our world Uh, really promotes. It's something that we all um, have dabbled with at some point in our journey in life. I mean, it's natural for us that what we end up doing is this false righteousness is trying to make ourselves look good. That, hey, we're good people. We haven't been to jail. We're good moral character. We have good moral character. I try to be a great parent. I'm a great husband, or I try to be all these things. And then we kind of build up and say, I look like I have it all together. I'm, I'm good. You know, my, my job's good, my house is good, my car's good, my kids are good, and all this other stuff. And then on top of that, so often, and I know I'm guilty of this, it's like just as soon as you think you're like a bad parent or your kids are bad, you see someone else's kids, you know, and you're like, thank God, they're not as bad as those kids, <laughs> you know. And then it kind of ju- like justifies in our own minds, like, we're good people. We are good people. And so it's this false righteousness that the Pharisees carried around. They're like nose in the air. Hey, this is who we are. Even so much so that Jesus came, was right in front of them. The things that they memorized, it was right in front of them living. And they totally missed it. They totally missed it because of their own arrogance and their own self-righteousness. But Jesus says, hey, true righteousness is going to come through me. And our identity changes in that. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, He, being God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's this transformation of identity. That because God sent Jesus, who, who didn't have any sin, he became sin so that you and I might become righteousness in him. And so this identity changes to say, Hey, it's not about you and me and our good morals and all these other things, because quite frankly, we're nobody without God. There's nothing that we could do. We can never be good enough. We can't earn our way to heaven and try to earn righteousness of God without him. And so we see that. And this is why even uh, a couple of verses earlier, Paul says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. This is why we celebrate baptism. And there's this new identity that comes when we experience the righteousness of God, his grace, his forgiveness, who he is and who we're not, that our lives are radically changed. And we got to celebrate that through, through the symbolism of baptism saying, hey, this is what is happening in my life. My identity is changed. Paul even reiterates in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's this identity change. And the reality is that Jesus didn't come to make bad people better. He came to give dead people life. And, and so often we're like, okay, if I start following God, I'll just be a better person. I'll just need to, and that's true, but that's because God wants to give you life, not a set of rules that say, hey, just do all these. And this, like, this isn't a self-help book in the sense of, hey, it's a 12-step program and follow these 12 things and you'll be a good person. You'll be happier. You'll be a better person. It's not about that. It comes from Jesus conquering death and giving life and for us to surrender and give our, life, our lives to him because that's what he's in the business of doing, not making bad people better, but giving dead people life. And that happens when our identity is being changed. We recognize um, his righteousness in our life, not our own righteousness. If you're taking a note, second point this morning is that true righteousness leads to new actions. True righteousness leads to new actions. Our identity changes and our actions change. Go flip back to the very beginning of chapter 5 when Jesus starts this sermon. And um, it says this in, in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, uh, are, are, are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is laying out these things because our identity changes and we experience the true righteousness, our actions change. Our, this true righteousness leads to a new action. In a nutshell, saying we love God because we love God. 
We obey God because we want to obey God. We do right things and holy things because we want to do right and holy things. No one commands me to kiss my wife, love and hug my children, or eat brisket off of my big green egg, okay? No one commands me to do that. I love those things. I love them. And so they come natural to me. You don't have to force me to do that. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Our actions should be one that say, out of the love of this righteousness I've experienced, man, I I should be changing my actions. And when we experience this righteousness through salvation in our relationship with God, we know and we see in Scripture and from experience in our lives and believers' lives, the Holy Spirit comes into us, doesn't he? And the Holy Spirit that comes into us begins this process of what's called sanctification. Pretty much this big churchy seminary word of we're getting rid of old things, things that aren't pleasing to God, and God is filling us up with the fruit of the Spirit and things that are of God. And so our lives and our actions are now reflective. When we're believers, we should be identified by things like love and compassion and grace and forgiveness. To see those things And for people to experience those. Now, as I was thinking about this, I really had to ask this question. I I want you to think about this. If those are the actions, if we're supposed to be peacemakers and care for people and love our neighbor and and mourn for those who mourn and, and all these things that Jesus lays out and the fruit of the Spirit, are those the things, are those the actions that people see in believers? Think about that. Are those the things that when people think of Christians, that they're like, man, Christians are characterized by their love, forgiveness. I would say, and we can argue about this later, I I would love to hear your thoughts. More often than not, people don't see Christians that way. They see them as judgmental, hypocritical, pointing the finger. Man, last week, I I even told them I was going to use them as a sermon illustration. When I was at Deneen, there was a gentleman and I'll be honest, I mean, he even said it, so I'm not talking bad about him. He was a rough-looking dude. He had his grown-out beard, ponytail. He had cut-off jeans, shorts, tats. Uh, he was just a rough-looking dude. And I started asking him, I was like, hey, have you been in church here for a long time? He said, no, just three months. And I was like, okay, you know, so he told me how he kind of found the church. He said, I tried church about 10 years ago. And I walked in. I was going through a rough time in my life. I kind of said, okay, last-ditch effort. Need to get, maybe I could, God will show me something. Let me go to church. So he goes to church, dressed like that, sits in a pew, and he notices this lady just kind of staring him up and down. You know what I'm talking about, okay? And this lady's like looking at him like, oh, my goodness. And he's like, he goes, and I was dressed a little bit nicer than I am today. That's what he told me. He's like, I was wearing pants. <laughs> so I love it. And um, he's like, she just kept looking at me, and I love the boldness of this gentleman he went to her and he said, ma'am, may I help you? And you know what she said? She said, no, but you can help me. And he said, okay, what's that? And she goes, by not wearing clothes like that to church. And so he, he knew like some Bible education, a little bit, I guess. And he said, well, ma'am, he said, didn't Jesus say come as you are? And this is her response. I kid you not. She said, yes, and you can go as you are. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, he's telling me this. And he's like, after that, I was done with church. And so often as Christians, we're not known for 
what we stand for, we, we are known for what we stand against. And I'm not saying we don't need to stand against things, but at the same time, we should be known, and, and, and out of this righteousness of God, we should be peacemakers. We should care and love our neighbors. We should be known for be, being um, people that offer forgiveness to people who wrong us because that's what God has done to us through Jesus. And so we need to be recognized by those things. Now, let me kind of flip it a little bit and go to the other side of this because I think one of the tensions as believers that we face is that um, it's a big tension is that you and I, we cannot expect unbelievers who do not possess the Holy Spirit to act like believers who do possess the Holy Spirit. This is what I mean by this. So often we get all in a tizzy as believers and we're like, I cannot believe that person acts that way. I can't believe that this happened or that. And it's a lost, lost people act lost. People who don't know God act like people who don't know God. And, and so for us, we kind of get all in a tizzy. Um, for instance, if you remember a couple of years ago, I'm just using this as an example. If this was you, sorry, I'm stepping on your toes. But I remember when Starbucks decided not to put Merry Christmas on their coffee cups. And I remember all, all the Christians were like, I can't believe this. Jesus is the reason for this season. Put Christmas on the coffee cups, you know? And it's like, I can't believe this. And they were like, there's outrage. I'm boycotting Starbucks. I can't believe this. I don't even like the $5 coffee, you know? And it's like Christians come out of the woodwork, and they're like, I can't believe you're taking Christ off of the coffee cups. Well, here's the deal. Starbucks can do whatever they want. They're not a Christian company. We can't expect them to act Christian. And when we have family members and friends and companies, whether it's Disney World or Walmart or whatever, and I told the first service, as long as it's not Chick-fil-A, okay? Chick-fil-A, man, Christian chicken. I, I told the first service, Dan Cathy's like the Pope of like Christian chicken, right? Man, just don't get rid of that. Um, but you think about it. Man, we, we expect unbelievers to act like believers, and when they don't, we get mad and irate about it, and our actions that Jesus, that they're supposed to be a reflection of Jesus, go out the window. And we saw that, and I'm not trying to go down a rabbit hole, but we saw that through politics and the election and racial tensions and cultural stuff and everything. I, I've, I've met so many people that are like, I had to get off Facebook. It was just making me angry. And so we should be a reflection of Jesus. Stand up for for what we should stand up for, but at the same time, our lives should be one that, because of the Holy Spirit consuming our life, should be one that reflect what he does. We cannot, we cannot control the actions of other people. We can certainly control our actions, right, and our words. Third, true righteousness produces a new vision. Listen to what Jesus says after this. I think this is so true, and it kind of goes to what we just talked about. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And you and I all know there's some salty Christians, right? And they're so salty that it, it loses its flavor. It actually does the reverse. I, I remember uh, me and Sloan were probably married for about a year at this point. Her family was coming over to our house. We were celebrating something, and her dad is like a big griller. Like, I mean, great steaks and hamburgers, just does everything well. And I was like, I need to impress. You know, I'm going to grill something really good. So I was like, I'll do hamburgers, you know. You can't mess those things up. Uh, um, I was like, I, you know, I've never really 
did anything on the grill. I was a newbie, so I got my gas grill all right. And I was like, I'm going to create so much flavor on these burgers. Her dad's going to be wild. So I got some Dale's sauce. You know what Dale's is, okay? And I put some on the burgers. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I let them marinate overnight, okay? Now, I was like, man, they're going to be full of flavor. They're going to be so juicy. No, okay, Dale's is like salty, and so I'm not thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, everybody's going to love these burgers or whatever. I'm making like 40 burgers for all these family members. Grill them, and I would sit down, say the blessing. And then I remember looking at her dad, because, you know, I'm looking for approval from my father-in-law. I'm like, man, he's going to love this. And I see him bite into it, and he's like, <laughs> you know. He's like, I was, I was like, how are the burgers? <laughs> man, these are salty. What, what did you put on them? I was like, ah, overnight, I'm in Dale's. And he's thinking, you idiot. <laughs> you know, nobody does that. But the saltiness while Dale's sauce is good, if you put it on there a little bit, let it sit for about 20 minutes, okay, you're good. But overnight, man, it was overpowering. And, and Jesus is like, hey, listen, we're the soul of the earth, but we can't lose our taste. We can't lose our influence in the world by those things. It's hard to be restored. He says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then I love this second illustration. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. Those are the actions that change. See your good works and give glory to your who? Father. To give glory to God. To give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not glory to yourselves, not glory to your righteousness, the glory to God. And so true righteousness produces this new vision. It produces this mission in us that as we've experienced him and our identity changes and now our actions change, now it's this mission to say, you know what? Everything that I do is an opportunity to show other people about the work of God. It's about how he is the greater Moses, how what he is doing in our lives. And the outcome of true righteousness is not about making ourselves bigger to God. That's works-based. It's legalism, trying to do all these things to make ourselves look good to God. It's not about making yourself bigger to God, but making God bigger to others. Everything that we do should be, how am I making God bigger? Think about that thought. It should guide everything that we do. Am I making God bigger in my life? Parents, the way that you parent your children, are you making God bigger? Do they see your dependence and passion and pursuit? Not to say that you're perfect, but to say, do they see that you depend on God, you're making him bigger in the way that you parent? At your job, would people say you're making God bigger? Would your coworkers see you're one of joy and, and forgiveness and grace? And even in hard circumstances, you're encouraging and all those things. Or where they say, hey, you're nasty, <laughs> you know, and the way that you talk and treat people doesn't reflect God at all. What about your family or people out in your community, in your neighborhood? Do they see that you are making God bigger? The humbling question is, who's bigger? You or God? Who's bigger in your life? You or God, because this true righteousness, this thing that Jesus is going to lay out over the next six weeks that we're going to look into, it is about making God bigger to others. And that is the new vision. That's this new passion. If I was to add a fourth point, and you're probably like, please don't, I need to get to lunch, okay? 
You can go out with all the other Valentine's crazies and wait four hours, you know. But if I was to make a fourth point, I would say true righteousness begins with surrender. It's saying what we just witnessed with baptism. You know, I can't do it. I tried. I try to make myself look good. I try to clean up my act before I come to God and come to church. Just come to Jesus. Just surrender and say, I don't have what it takes. I'm not righteous. I need you. I need your righteousness. And that's you this morning. I would love to talk to you, pray with you, and just answer any questions you might have. I'll be down here. or Maybe you're like, oh, that's really embarrassing. I can't do that. Talk to me afterwards. And let, let today be a day that you know for sure you're leaving here saying, hey, on this Valentine's Day, when it's all about love and stuff, man, I experienced the greatest of love because God is love. That I experienced his love and his righteousness by just surrendering my life to him. Let's pray, and then we're going to close in worship. Father, you call us to live a life because of Jesus, to humble ourselves, and for us to decrease, for you to increase. And so, God, will you just take away our self-righteousness? Make us humble. God, would you allow us and our actions to be one that represent you well? Not our flesh, not what we think and try to build ourselves up, but that you would be bigger in our lives. And this mission that we see is every conversation that we have, every single person that we encounter at our jobs and in our families, whether it's our own kids or a complete stranger, that God is an opportunity to make you famous. An opportunity for others to see what you've done in our life. And so God, allow us to reflect you. Allow us to decrease so that you increase. We don't want following you all about us. It's about your son, Jesus. And God, as he taught that and as he walked that, let us remember it's about making that who we are and what we stand for and who Jesus is and our forgiveness and love and grace that you've offered us. Let's make you bigger in our lives. In your son's name, amen. And let's stand and worship together.